Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. what you get for loving me that's what you get for loving me everything you had is gone as you can see that's what you get for loving me this is carefree highway revisited the show that celebrates the work of gordon lightfoot song by song i'm your host mike messner and along with me today is a fellow fan and good friend of mine kevin mcclear and we're speaking to him from his home today in alaska kevin thank you so much for joining me on the show it's really my pleasure all right. So I always start with the same question. How did you get into Gordon Lightfoot's music? It's uh, it's good that you phrased it that way, because I actually got into his music before I really heard about him. Um, uh, I grew up in, in Southeast Alaska, and we had uh, you know plenty of nights by a campfire or, or, or days in the kitchen where the weather was too bad outside to go out, and, and, and we'd sing songs. And a lot of those songs as it turns out, ended up being songs he wrote, which is really pretty incredible when you consider that that was in the 80s and he'd only been performing for about 20 years and had managed to get (laughs) songs into the actual folk music canon, which is, you know, more often talked about than actually accomplished. Yes, and he had not really become as popular in the States. Um, Although, I mean, the lower 48 versus Alaska, I mean, they were certainly different exposures um to it and alaska had a lot more exposure to canadian music yeah um, you know stan rogers is is a local hero and you know it's not that far yeah absolutely what do you like about gordon lightfoot's music i think what i have to say about gordon lightfoot's music is it's all deceptively simple it's stuff that we could sing to each other as, as evidenced by how i learned about it mm-hmm. uh but the ability to conceptualize such things that's that's incredible like for instance, Don Quixote, you know, da 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 It's a schoolyard chant. You know, it, you could skip rope to it, but but the words he puts into it. I mean, see the wise and wicked ones who feed upon life's sacred fire. See the soldier with a gun who must be dead to be admired. If you or I wrote that, we'd be treated as far left lefties and ignored. He writes that and hands up on a postage stamp. Yeah, well, he also made money, you know, in a way that you and I probably wouldn't for writing those kinds of lines. Sure um, have you seen Lightfoot perform live? Oh, probably at the Winnipeg Folk Festival when I was six. I can't say as I remembered it, but I'm pretty sure my parents would have made it to it, and I know he was there. So let's focus a little bit now on For Lovin' Me. And the reason that this sticks in my mind, certainly not because it's a pleasant message that the writer is sending here. It's very, very catchy, but pretty repetitive. I mean, there's no middle eight or anything like that, but it's really kind of an ugly song and it's kind of an in your face 
chauvinistic song. So in spite of myself, I still like it, you know, musically and and even lyrically. So what do you, why do you uh, appreciate this song? Why do you enjoy it? I mean, it is utterly dislikable, as you and I have said in other conversations. It's dislikable, but it's it's part of the human experience, you know, and, and that's what Gordon Lightfoot does so well. It's and it, it's it's not that different from a lot of the other stuff he does in that regard. It 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 brings together a lot of thoughts, a lot of elements of of who we are and what we are, and and sometimes it's less varnished than a lot of his other works, but it certainly fits there with with the rest of it. I mean, take for example. Approaching Lavender, right? Uh, it's a beautiful song, uh, but it's a song where the singer is desperate to spend more time with Lavender, but ultimately he knows it's a fleeting thing. It's, it's, she draws him like a flame, but he, he will be consumed by that flame. And he will say things that he, he can never say again, probably because she won't let him. Uh, mm-hmm. To understand Lavender, you, you need to know that there's no shame. And of course, she won't share your blame if you try. If for um, loving me was was sung by by say Lorena McKenna with a nice ethereal uh, <laughs> voice or whatnot, it would be sung from the point of view of lavender. Yeah, I I hadn't thought about that, but I I like this idea that they're so diametrically opposed, and I like the way you said you know the unvarnished. Although I don't know if there is a particular setting where this would be, you know, ideal to listen to. Although the closest that I would think would be by a campfire with people who are not going to take it terribly seriously. Uh, You know, one person with an acoustic guitar doing a pretty simple, you know, arrangement of it because I, I haven't played it in a while, but it is a fairly simple song. It's probably not one you're going to be, you know, listening to when you're in a room with a candle lit or when you're watching the sunset just as no no i think for me the right time to be listening to it be you know in the midst of a set of late night radio where a mix between the late night radio and perhaps insomnia has you feeling Mm -hmm. a little bit more open to reflecting on who you are to other people and more importantly who other people are to you you know just kind of when you're just open to let your mind not be guarded and, and you hear this song, and you think, well, wait a minute, what, what, what does this song have to teach me? Let's talk a little bit about the genesis of the song. It was written about 1964 and Nicholas Jennings, who I've cited many times on this show and who wrote a actually very good uh, biography of Lightfoot said, and I'm quoting here, for Love and Me is a song with tough guy posturing that was clearly inspired by Dylan's Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. And I'm wondering if you have ever thought of those two songs sort of in the same uh, breath or the same page in the metaphorical book before. You know, I, I, I hadn't. I have to say, though, uh, for loving me comes off better in the deal because don't think twice it's all right has a certain romanticism about it that kind of makes the callousness actually okay. I I'm not saying that you treated me unkind. You, I could have done better, but I don't mind. You just wasted my precious time. Don't think twice it's all right. That's kind of putting the blame on the person who is being left behind. Whereas for loving me, it, it's like <laughs> I'm a bastard, and you should have known it, but. I am who I am. I think don't think twice it's all right tries to it does have that varnish. 
and that varnish kind of changes the message. It makes it more, I guess it's more uh, of a gaslighting song. It says, you know, this is who I am and you're part of it. You see, you did this. So it's really, you can't blame me. Whereas for loving me certainly doesn't try to avoid the blame. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it says in effect, look, you knew that I was a rattlesnake when you took me into your home. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I bite you because that's what I do. That's what rattlesnakes do. Vanity fared in an interview with Lightfoot a while back and the writer quoted, it was sort of like a country song about a gunslinger walking through town and boasting, look at me. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it really is, I mean, it's certainly not admirable, this attitude that the singer has, but it is at least shameless. Mm -hmm. Looking at the lyrics a little bit more. I ain't the kind to hang around with any new love that I've found because moving is my stock in trade. I'm moving on. I won't think of you when I'm gone. And this is just so stark. Mm-hmm. And it's probably what many, many men at least have felt, but have never put into words because they don't want to be that much of an ass. And maybe because they certainly don't want to commit And in some sense, I mean, they're afraid to love. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I wouldn't limit it to just men. I I think this is more of a universal experience. This is not admirable, as you said, but it's something that many people have felt. And the the, the magic of this song and why I, I wanted to talk about this song is because it is unafraid of touching that. And it is brutal. I, I honestly can't say it's something that I've ever thought about any anyone I've I've been with, but it's something that I could definitely use to kind of think about how others may have responded to situations I've seen. We'll talk a little bit later about how this could be delivered by a woman, you know, and the experience that all humanity has had or a large portion of humanity. Uh, And we'll talk about that in a second or two, because that's an important point that you're bringing up. Then the next verse, don't you shed a tear for me because I ain't the love you thought I'd be. I've got a hundred more like you. So don't be blue. I'll have a thousand before I'm through as if it couldn't get any more brazen. (laughs) Now it's getting boastful and callous. And it's one of the reasons that Lightfoot now says, I hate this fucking song. If you've seen the documentary, there's a video of him playing it back in the 60s. Maybe he was playing it on Johnny Cash's song or a show. I can't remember. But, you know, he said to his wife, Kim, "Okay, turn that off. You know, he's completely disowning the song at this point. I I think that's actually a a very interesting point in its own right, because at this point in his career, Gordon Lightfoot has been running away from the song for longer than he performed it. And yet here we are on a podcast that's going through his entire catalog and we're bringing up the song in the first 10 uh, seasons, episodes, because it's out there and it's very real, but it's not something that any of us particularly want in in himself included. Uh, and, And I think that his very reaction to it at this point is an indicator of the power of the song itself. Yeah. And we, again, we're going to talk a little bit more about the people who have covered it a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But that particular line is something that was focused on in Jennings's book. When Peter, Paul, and Mary recorded it, and a lot of other people have recorded it, but the lines like, I've got a hundred more like you, I'll have a thousand before I'm through, were no longer a boast. So I think it says a lot about 
Peter, Paul and Mary, that they were able to look at that and make it just a little bit more mournful. And uh, it certainly didn't hurt Gordon because he made some money off of that. We'll be right back to our conversation with Kevin McClear about For Love and Me. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Hi, this is Audie Martello, the host of the Mostly Folk podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music that may or may not be true to the genre. Sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick every so often, as well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at mostlyfolk.org. Interesting way of looking at the same line because it is in Peter and Paul and Mary's version, a sad reflection, almost saying like, none of this is going to work for me. I'm going to do this a thousand more times and it's just not going to work. And it's, it's amazing that one line can mean so many things just given the presentation of the song. Now, there you go. You're crying again. Now, there you go. You're crying again. But then someday when your poor heart is on the mend, I just might pass this way again. He's screwed this woman over, you know, and he's completely broken her heart. And he's predicting that he will come back and be very charming and very sweet and very contrite. And he's going to stab her in the back again after this. We'll talk about what he said himself about the song. But I mean, it it just this is a perfect crescendo to the whole thing. He's basically saying, I'm irredeemable. I know we want to talk about this part later as well, but I, I just want to add one little thing about the craftsmanship of Gordon Lightfoot. Because if you look at it, all of the harshest lines are kind of metrically separated from the rest of the group. Um, so, so you've got the lines, as you can see, I won't think of you when I'm gone. I'll have a thousand more before I'm through and I might pass this way again. They're not actually quite in with the original. And, and one of the things I was thinking about when I was hearing that it's kind of a, uh, a comedian, right, who, who gives the whole set and kind of waits for the laugh. And then that final brutal punchline happens kind of after the laugh is ending. But it doesn't actually darken the rest of the set. It's almost an afterthought. It's, it's an afterthought, but it makes the rest of it more palatable. You're right when you talk about this, this last line, he screwed her over and he's broken her heart and he's, he's going to come back again. But he doesn't quite say that right at that point, which is part of what makes the song listenable and it, it's 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 an amazing song for that because it's this it's, it's so dark and so so terrible if you're just reading the words but if you listen to it, it goes back to what i was saying about don quixote you can listen to the schoolyard rhyme and you don't actually hear necessarily what's being said until you start thinking about it i think it's important as you said you know to read the lyrics is one thing but to hear them musically in context mm -hmm. is quite another and i think it's interesting that in some of the cover versions that whole bit about there you go you're crying and i might pass this way again that verse is completely left out mm -hmm. or pieces of it are left out because it's just so cold but it's also important to listen to the original, I think, to get the full meaning of what you're talking about. 
So what Lightfoot has said himself about the song, I was married at the time and it was a damn poor song to write when you're married to somebody. And then there is a possibly apocryphal story about when he was getting divorced from Britta, his first wife. Her lawyer walked out of the courtroom singing, that's what you get for loving me, uh, which I think is kind of an interesting way of turning the knife uh, mm-hmm. in all of that. Have you heard that? Can you confirm or deny that? I, I haven't heard the the apocryphal part. But again, the, the fact that it's out there uh, speaks to what I find so compelling about the song and the fact that it is kind of a part of the universal uh, human experience and the fact that it it can be used even apocryphally so well by his divorce lawyer as well as by the person who sang it. It was actually Britta's divorce lawyer. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, And then he goes on in the same interview to say, I learned a lesson from that because after I sang that song for a while, I asked myself, what am I saying? Even long after I was divorced and separated and she'd gone her way and I'd gone mine, I would sing this song and think, geez, how did she ever put up with this? And he says, I stopped singing it. And he, you're, you said a little while ago that he has now been running from this song longer than he was performing it. Um, in the early 2000s is when he stopped singing it. And it was at least as much because of his own introspection as his daughter coming up to him and saying, Dad, this is really a chauvinistic song. You really ought to stop singing it. You and I can talk about what, what his songs mean to us. And that's the wonderful thing about things that are put out into the public sphere is, is, is what it will mean to me is very different from what it will mean to you is very different from what it will mean when it's his daughter talking about family life and, and this song and, and, and that experience. And mm-hmm. at that point, what Peter, Paul and Mary did to it, what Waylon Jennings did to it, what Ian and Sylvia did to it, none of that actually matters uh, because that's not the point for Gordon Lightfoot and his family. Right. Certainly not because because he didn't write this for, you know, another songwriter or at least Mm -hmm. not ostensibly he didn't. But he did say that he doesn't need to sing it anymore. Quote, I've got the best, the cream of the crop right now. Thank you. That meaning for loving me is not cream of the crop. I just do the cream of the crop songs in my show. We just bowl them over. They love us. It just keeps getting better. So it may be, I mean, he wrote this in 1964. That would make him 25 when he wrote this. So with age comes wisdom. And so now I I certainly think that he's matured Mm -hmm. uh, as a songwriter since 64. And he certainly put out things that are every bit as good at this. And I I think a lot more artistically pleasing. So there may be another reason where he just thinks, okay, this is more young man stuff. And he has also said that he doesn't like listening to his early work in general. Well, I mean, he's right. I mean, he's got much better stuff out there. I mean, I, I, I like the song, but it's it's ugly truth, kind of like a bug trapped in amber, right? You don't want to spend much time looking at the bug, but the bug in amber is a curiosity. You'll go back to look at it. But then you have the ability to look at it next to some masterwork of art, like some of his, some of his later stuff that, you know, the Canadian Railroad Trilogy. I mean, you, you have access to, to that or you have access to uh, this. If if I go to a, a concert, this is not the song I'm, I'm going to want to hear. As a, as a, I mean, even as the person who suggested to you that this is a good song, a good topic to to discuss, 
you know, if I was going to go see Gordon Lightfoot tomorrow, this is not the song that out of his repertoire that I would want to hear at, at his concerts. Well, and as he said, he probably wouldn't play it for you if you did want to hear it. So Fair enough. There it is. Yeah. Um, it did show up on his first album, Lightfoot. And you and I have had a couple of brief conversations about mm-hmm. it. One question that comes up is whether or not Lightfoot could have gotten away with releasing this song, leaving out a greatest hits of the remake on the Gord's Gold collection, um, whether he could have gotten away with releasing this on anything except his debut album. And I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I think another thing that's important to keep in mind about the song, uh, as you as you've talked about, he matured, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the people who have the skill to write a song like this have the age and maturity to not write this song. <laughs> and I mean, this song is so much full of the cockiness of youth, but it doesn't have like the pretense that often comes with your first experience of trying to write music, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what makes this song possible? is the fact that he was that good of a songwriter that early in his career that he could do it. I want to hand you here, I've got it here, I want to hand you here the, 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 the album cover, right? This is the album cover for, for, uh, for Lightfoot Explanation Point, right? He's clean cut, but the haircut could have been Jimmy Dean's in the right light, you know? He's wearing jeans and a button shirt. He's, he's ready to go, after this, this, if he needs to, he could go pull the carburetor out of his Western star, right? He's, he's looking away from the camera, kind of whistling. He's not taking the suits at the record label too seriously. He's really making the joke on them, this whole album cover, right? At this point, you know, this is his first album. He doesn't know what's going to catch fire. He doesn't know where his career is going to go. And it's entirely possible that in a different timeline, this album is the beginning of him being the bad boy of Canada. You know, I, I like the way that you've described the album. And I quote again, I'm quoting from Nicholas Jennings. The cover photo, talking about Lightfoot, uh, de- depicted him as James Dean Cool, clad in denim and cowboy boots with guitar in hand and legs stretched out before him. But with his over-the-shoulder glance, he also looked a little worried about who was behind him on the trail. Lightfoot, exclamation point, was the showcase he'd been waiting for. And with the exclamation mark of its title, boldly announced the arrival of a major talent. Now, we're not going to go too much into the album writ Mm -hmm. large here, but the fact that he's looking over his shoulder, I had never thought, I mean, I thought that was just, okay, the photographer saying, okay, turn this way because you want to get your profile or something like that. I mean, do you like this idea that, you know, he's looking over his shoulder because he's not sure who's coming after him? I I mean, that's possible. It's a very careful photo that keeps his options open for what the second album is going to be. It was very cleverly done. It's all part of the scariness of, of producing your first album, right? You put a lot of stuff on it. You don't know what is going to happen. You don't know where you're going to go, but you do know that for the rest of your career, you're going to be looking at that picture in one form or another. It's a lot of commitment and he managed to not specifically commit to a single image in the process. Yeah. And I think that was, I don't know how much of that was him thinking about it or how much it was the company thinking about it, but it certainly worked Mm -hmm. and it was very well done. We'll be right back to our conversation with Kevin McClear about For Love and Me, but first, stepping away from folk music here for a second. When you're not listening to the music of Gordon Lightfoot, 
Are you a fan of true crime, cults, paranormal experiences, conspiracies, and all things sinister? Then take a listen to Sinister Story Hour, a podcast focusing on macabre and monstrous events in the recent past and the not-so-recent. Hostess Stephanie Lynn tells true stories of events that are ghastly, gruesome, but most of all, great fun. That's Sinister Story Hour, available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to Carefree Highway Revisited. Oddly enough, although it has been very well reviewed critically, okay, the album did not chart in either Canada or the United States. My guess is that was for budgetary reasons. But when I listened to the song and the rest of the album, but particularly when I listened to the song, it really works well. Uh, with just the three-piece accompaniment. Now, on the album, it's David Ree and Lightfoot and Bill Lee is playing bass. And the thing that I love about that original recording was that it's not overproduced and that they have just the right twang with David Ray's uh, lead mm -hmm. guitar. And there's really no need for any percussion. I mean, when you listen to the Gord's Gold version, they do have, I guess it's Jim Gordon or somebody doing sort of a backbeat on it. But there's enough rhythm with Gordon's guitar, which I think may have been a 12 string, that there's really no need for anything else. And that's and that's part of the magic of what happens because if you add too much more, I mean it, it, it's hard to be boastful uh, about how you are all that when you have an orchestra behind you, right? And and it's keeping it down to the, this very simple. It's like some of the versions are so heavily orchestrated, and you're yeah. looking at going, um, just what what song are you trying to do? Right. Yeah. And I, I think that when you listen to the orchestrated version, which is turned into a medley with Did She Mention My Name? And then you listen to the original version of this. I mean, you almost feel if you didn't know better, you'd think that the orchestrated version is trying too hard to cast an image that really wasn't intended by the song. I think the orchestrated version is is um, kind of being stuck with it because so many people covered it. You kind of need to, but yeah. kind of trying to run from it as far as you can. So he's playing the song and he's doing, but does she men I mention my name? I mean, it's kind of trying to say, oh, look, I'm not this guy. I also have these other thoughts. You know, I, mm -hmm. I also, I am also sometimes the person wondering if, you know, why doesn't she call? You know, it, it's the whole thing sort of does a, a disservice to actually both songs, I think. But who am I to say? I mean, it's 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 a different orchestration for a different time. And I'm not going to say that, you know, doing a disservice to a song that you're trying to, that you're not comfortable with is, is a bad thing. But I think that he was trying to soften the message of this song by merging it with the other. And he kind of brought that she mentioned my name into the orchestration into the song to try and minimize this one even further. Yeah, and there was probably a musical, you know, decision there also mm -hmm. when they were doing uh, that particular recording in, I guess it was Toronto, which brings us to the number of times that this song has been performed. So, Kevin, without looking at our show notes, if you added up the amount of times that this has been played, that For Love and Me has been played either as the medley with Did She Mention My Name or by itself, how many times has he played this song in concert? You know, I, I've been trying to figure out how I'm going to answer that question for a while. <laughs> I mean, 
what, what can you say? I, uh, I, I know he, he played it with Johnny Cash. I know that he played it for the first part of his career and then ran from it. So, you know, other songs that you've listed, you've, you've said about 700 times. I would say this one, maybe 150. I mean, that would be assuming, let's say 20 years of playing it and 100 albums. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. The correct answer is 68 times altogether. What? Yeah. 68. 56 of those were with the medley, although he hasn't done that either since 2002. Uh, And he has played the song by itself only 12 times in concert. That number may or may not include the performance on the Johnny Cash show. Beginning in Cleveland, Ohio on May 8th, 1965. So at the very beginning, he's probably promoting this or maybe his second album has come out by that time. Uh, And then the last time he played it by itself was on April 12th, 2002 at the Community Arts Center in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. The most recent one with the medley was on May 9th of the same year in in Cincinnati. So he absolutely, now we're coming up on 20 years where he hasn't touched this song with a 10-foot pole. But you did say it's been recorded by 31 different artists. Okay, you mentioned Elvis in passing. I'll go through a few of them here that are notable. Uh, Ian and Sylvia, okay, and they did a, song, a, a t- album entitled Early Morning Rain, okay, and that went to 70, number 77 in the United States. Peter, Paul, and Mary's version went to number five in the U.S., 30 in the adult, U.S. adult contemporary, 36 in Australia, and the album A Song Will Rise went up to number eight in the U.S., And touching back, I know we've talked a little bit about what PPM did, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Jennings said, quote, when Peter, Paul and Mary recorded for Loving Me in 1965, it had none of the cavalier quality of the heartless lover in Lightfoot's brisk original. Peter Yarrow said, it's a wrenching song for me. The singer wasn't gloating about breaking this person's heart. He was in a kind of despair about his inability to be constructive in love. It offered an honest look at life's dilemmas, not just a Pollyanna view of relationships. What are your thoughts on that? I will say that something that's also worth noting about Peter, Paul, and Mary is they were one of the first people to cover it. And many of the other covers took their cues from from Peter, Paul, and Mary. Okay. Um, so if like if you like listen to Ian and Sylvia, for instance, their harmonies were were closer to Peter Paul and Mary. Um, even like um, Welling Jennings, who you'd, you'd expect to be able to be able to uh, you know pull off the original just just fine, kind of um, had some more of uh, Peter Yarrow's um, uh, interpretation of some of the song. Uh, and so a large part of its success in the wider market has a lot to do with that reinterpretation right there. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are, I think a lot of the covers have that sort of more introspective quality to them and either mourning or sadness, or I don't want to say despair, but certainly, you know, a sad acceptance of what is going on. Some of the others that have mentioned, I'll just go through really quickly. The Carter family, which was turned on to this song by Dylan in 1966. And then that it turned into their next single. We've talked about Johnny Cash, Chad and Jeremy, Flatt and Scruggs, George Hamilton, the fourth, Honeydew, you mentioned Waylon Jennings. We mentioned Elvis Presley. And then We Five. And I wanted to mention We Five because Debbie Bergen 
did the the lead vocal on this and it was the first time i had heard a woman singing lead on it and her vocal was such a sneering uh you know and even at the very end of her vocal at the end of the song she kind of goes <laughs> you know this nasty sort of laugh and it made it even nastier to me than any other version i had heard up until that time i'm gonna have to check that one out yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. It's on the Catch the Wind album that came out in 1970. Uh, and it was the same record where my episode with Pete Fullerton, uh, where we talked about early morning rain. So you want to make a look at, at that. We've talked about some of the different cover versions of it. And I'm kind of a, assuming that you enjoyed Peter, Paul and Mary's version. Are there any other versions of it that you thought were particularly striking? Not really. We've gone through a lot of the versions that are there. And uh, I mean, I will say, uh, Johnny Cash, I, I would recommend going and checking that one out just because uh, the, the harmonies with Johnny Cash and and, uh, and Gordon Lightfoot are, are something that I would have liked to hear a lot more of. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and just uh, as a as an artistic note, not not talking about necessarily a song, but that's just that that was a that that's a version that I, I always like, just because ugh, the two of them singing was great. Well, and Gordon is not known for harmonizing with no. too many singers at any point in his career. And to do it with someone who is as flexible with as Johnny Cash, who managed to harmonize with Bob Dylan, for goodness sake, uh, you know, that's really actually saying something. Um, I did also like Johnny Cash's version of it. I've listened to Elvis's and although his vocal on it is flawless, I thought the production on of it was a little busy. And so I keep coming back to the Wii Five version, to Gordon's version, and to the PPM version, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, as we're beginning to wrap up here, is there anybody today that, or in the past who's not performing anymore, where you kind of think, wow, I really wish that they had covered this song in addition to the other people who have? I don't know how successful it would have been, but I would have been very interested to see what would happen if uh, Sylvia had taken it. Uh, I mean, because we, we had even Ian and Sylvia's version and like uh, perhaps as a as a counter to, um, you know, Ian's uh, alcohol in the bloodstream. But I think who I'd like to listen to more more now, it's like I, mean, I think Bonnie Raitt would do an amazing version. Oh, or, yeah. I think, you know, yeah. actually, Dolly Parton. Could you imagine if this is actually Jolene? Yeah, OK, I can kind of see that. I think I would have liked to have heard Linda Ronstadt do it. That would. I mean, I, I'd like to hear her do anything. Yeah. But uh, I think Bonnie Raitt. Yeah, Bonnie Raitt. And I kind of would like to hear Darius Rucker try it. Um, mm. You know, it, it, yeah. just him or his group, not with Hootie and the Blowfish, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, because I don't even want to contemplate what that would sound like. Kevin, are there any other thoughts you wanted uh, to leave us with about For Love and Me? We've talked about it from a whole lot of different angles, but I wanted to sort of let you have the last word here. I appreciate being able to give this song this treatment because I think it's very easy to kind of throw this song down the memory hall uh, because uh, it's an early piece. It's not a piece that Gordon Lightfoot himself enjoys right now. It's it's a hard piece, but sometimes the things that we need to, for lack of a better word, indulge in the most 
are the ones that make us a little bit more comfortable and say like, because um, if, if you look at a lot of the other songs that came out about, for a while, it was in vogue for every traveling musician to come up with the song that talks about how wonderful home is. I mean, Stan Rogers had uh, Lockkeeper. I mean, even ABBA with, with Super Trooper, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's so much, it's so easy to romanticize and it's, it's sometimes helpful and, and wonderful to, to sit back and go, it's not all romance and that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not okay for the people involved, but it's, it's, it's okay if where you are right now when you're listening isn't Pollyanna. Yeah, I think of CCR as long as I can see the light, mm-hmm. you know, and others like that. Kevin McClear, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk music with you and I'd love to have you on the show again real soon. Excellent, thank you. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you liked this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Our next episode will be coming out around the end of August, and it will feature my guest Liz Castillo discussing Gordon's song, Rainy Day People. So until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. That's what you get for loving me. That's what you get for loving me. Everything ahead is gone. As you can see, that's what you get for loving me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.